distinctly, it is etched in my memory forever, the day that I learned how to ride a bike without training wheels. I was probably five or six years old, somewhere in that neighborhood, when I guess you typically learn to ride your bike without training wheels. But here is what I remember, was it was a big event in my little neighborhood. Now, and all the kids came out to watch, all the neighborhood kids, like, Fran's going to learn how to ride her bike without training wheels. Now, the reason this was such a big deal is because this was the mid-60s. In the mid-60s, we really didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> this was the days of three television stations, no iPads, no video games, no cell phones. So, I mean, something as simple as somebody learning how to ride their bike was a big deal in the neighborhood. So anyway, we're out there. It's a Saturday. My dad is there, my older sister, Laurie, my older sister, Joy. You know, the kids are watching. So I'm getting it on. My dad's taking off the training wheels. And, and you know, y'all, parents, you, you've done this before. Anyway, so I'm on there. My dad's running with me. He's running with me. And I'm trying to, I'm starting to pedal. I'm starting to pedal. I'm starting to pedal. And it's a miracle. I begin to ride my bike with no training wheels. Ta-da! I was doing it. And so I'm riding my bike, and I'm so proud of myself. And so there's like this gang of kids. And so we're riding around. We had a, our, our neighborhood had like this little circle. And I'm riding around. And, and this is my memory. If y'all have memory, sometimes it's like, a, it's like a photograph in my mind. But I remember I'm riding, and right in front of me was my older sister, Laurie. She's five years older than me. So Laurie was right here. And Joy was just a little bit ahead of me. She's, she's three years older than me. And Laurie, you know, she's five years older than me. She's pedaling along, and so she goes, hi. And so she takes her hands off of the handlebars, and she's just pedaling along. And I mean, perfect balance. I mean, like we're at the circus, you know. And she's just riding with those, you know, without her hands. And then I look over there at Joy, and Joy, she's got her hands on the handlebars. She's three years older than me. She picks up her feet, and she puts them on the handlebars. And she's just cruising along like she's, you know, in a circus. So... I don't know why I had never seen them do this before, but in my mind, I mean, for those of you who have older siblings, whatever they do, you think you can do, right? But I don't know why, I, don't, I, I really don't know what was going through my brain, but I thought, huh, okay, I can do that. So I proceeded to, at the exact same time, take my hands off of the handlebars and take my feet off the pedals to put them on the handlebars. What was I thinking? <laughs> the next thing that is etched in my memory is things are kind of spinning in black, and I remember this swirling feeling, and the next thing I remember, I'm on my couch, <laughs> and my dad is over me going, are you okay, are you okay? So what was I thinking? Have you all ever had one of those moments where maybe you have done something, maybe it's a bad relationship, maybe it is a bad financial decision, maybe it is uh, something where you just stuck your, you know, what is it, you stuck your foot in your mouth. How many of you feel like you, you're in a, set, a social setting and then you just, you just inevitably say things and it's like, oh my gosh, why did I say that? What was I thinking? Okay, show of hands, how many of you have ever done that? Yeah, okay, and those of you who didn't raise your hand, I think you're not being honest. I don't know, I feel like I do it on a regular basis where I think, what was I thinking? But the reality is, is that our thought life really has this huge impact on our lives and how we live our lives. Let's have our scripture up here today. This is kind of the big idea that we have for today. Um, this is from the book of Proverbs, and Solomon writes, 
Be careful how you think because your life is shaped by your thoughts. Be careful how you think because your life is shaped by your thoughts. Now, there's a lot of application for this, but, but think about the, the child whose parents told them, uh, maybe not with this exact, but they, they communicated to them, you have no value. You are worthless. Maybe those words never specifically came out, but there are these wounds to their spirit. And they grow up thinking that they have no value, that they're not worthy, that they're not lovable, that they're not accepted. That child goes into with this negative uh, lie that's, you know, embedded in their brain. It's going to impact their relationship with God, their relationship with other people, how they live their life. The thoughts that we think have the impact, they influence our life. Be careful how you think because your life is shaped by your thoughts. So our story that we're looking at today is about a man in the Old Testament who had a, a vision, an image of who he was, and it was radically changed by the influence of a king. So who am I talking about? Uh, Mephibosheth is his name. So how many of you have heard of Mephibosheth? A uh, couple of folks, all right. Mephibosheth is a story in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Samuel. Um, it's not one that we often, you know, it, it, it is embedded in the story of King David. So King David, y'all might remember, began as the shepherd boy, wrote all the Psalms, killed Goliath, fights the Philistines, goes on to become the king of Israel. And so his story is kind of tucked away in there, and sometimes we overlook it. But it is a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. So in our story today, Mephibosheth, he is the grandson of Saul. So if we could have that up, he is the grandson of Saul. Now Saul was the first king in Israel. And so, yeah, we've got that. Anyway, yeah. Saul is the first king in Israel. Uh, he is handsome. He's head and shoulders taller than other people. A great military guy. But he begins to compromise in his relationship with God. But when Mephibosheth is born, he is the grandson of the king. Now, his father is Jonathan. Jonathan would have been second in line to the throne. And so we don't really, you know, in the United States, we don't really have a culture of royalty. But Great Britain is not too far across the pond, as they say. And how many, some of you watch The Crown. Any of y'all watch The Crown? Netflix, okay, let's come up, man, y'all can raise your hands too. But anyway, the crown, but, but just think about, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles and kind of think of that lineage. So when, when Mephibosheth is born, he is palace royalty. If they had paparazzi back then, they would have been taking pictures when he took his first steps, when he said his first words. Uh, you know, his life, he has servants who are taking care of him. He is living in the palace. But something very, very tragic happens when this little boy is five years old, about the same age that I was the day that I had my infamous bike crash that left me all black and blue. But he had something very much uh, uh, harder happen to him. Israel was embattled against the Philistines. They were kind of their, their arch enemy, and there was a fierce battle. And King Saul and Jonathan had gone out into battle. And as the battle raged, both men were killed. So this little boy, on one day, 
his grandfather and his father are killed in battle. Now, if that wasn't enough, a tragedy enough, just imagine your grandfather and your father both dying at the same time through a, through a, through a battle. In that culture, because the king and the second in line to the throne were murdered, there became, or killed in battle, there became this power vacuum. So the next person who was in line to the throne was Mephibosheth. But all knew that Mephibosheth's life was now in jeopardy. There was chaos in the, pan, in the palace, and his nurse, the scriptures tell us, grabbed him up, grabs him up, and is fleeing the palace for safety because they don't know. Is the army coming here? What's about to happen? And she grabs him up. She is running out of the palace, and then they fall. And the fall was so, uh, so abrupt or whatever is that he actually breaks not one leg, but two legs. Both of his legs are broken in the fall. They rush out of the palace, and they go into hiding. They go to a town called Lodabar. Uh, we don't know a lot about Lodabar, but we know it is not near Jerusalem. We know that it was considered to be like a ghetto. Uh, the word, I think, actually means something like without bread. It was a place, basically think that you have gone into the witness protection program because you do not want your identity to be known. So here this young boy goes from being a prince to being a fugitive to being the delight of the nation, someone who is accepted, beloved, wanted, fawned over, to being someone who is crippled, who can't walk. He goes from being able to run and laugh and play, and maybe if they had had bikes, ride a bike, to having to have someone carry him everywhere he goes. This is before the days of wheelchairs and, and things being ADA compliant and all of that. And he obviously didn't, you know, his, his brakes were not splinted and taken care of. So how this young man's world has turned upside down overnight. We have this gap in his story. Uh, the book of Samuel goes on and begins to tell us about what was happening at the national level. And what we do know is that the Philistines were, were defeated. We know that David, who had been, you know, he had been um, prophesied by God that he would be the king of Israel after Saul. He, he comes to the throne. There are different battles where he is subduing his enemies. And we don't know exactly how long this period takes, but there comes the point when David is firmly established as the king of Israel. And in that moment, the scriptures, there's this transition because it lists, you know, they defeated this enemy, they defeated this enemy, they defeated this enemy. And then we see that David is firmly established as the king. And then David asked this question. And he said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now, remember, Saul was the former king. And that I can show kindness to. And then he says a statement. And he says, for the sake of Jonathan. Now, a little backstory here that you might be aware of if you've kind of read this portion of Scripture. But David and Jonathan were the closest of closest friends. 
And at one point in the scriptures, when, when actually Saul was trying to kill David because he felt jealous and he was scared that David was going to take his place and David was more loved in him, you see Jonathan helping David get out of the city to protect him. And they're having this really beautiful conversation as they know their lives are about to be changed. And, and Jonathan and David make a covenant with one another. And a part of that covenant is that David promises to be kind to Jonathan as long as he's alive. But if something were to ever happen to Jonathan, David makes a covenant promise to be kind to his family. So now David is making good on that promise that he had made to his good friend Jonathan years before, years before they had any idea that all of this would unfold. And he asked the question, he said, is there anyone left of the household of Saul that I can show kindness to? Someone is called into the palace, and they say, yes, well, actually, Jonathan has one son. But here's the thing. He's crippled in both feet. And I thought it was interesting when you read the scripture and you have it in your bulletins there. But how would you like that if that's how people described you? This is Fran, but, and then here was your greatest shame, your greatest tragedy kind of attached to your name. Here is, here is Jane. Yes, she's the one that uh, got a divorce. Here is so-and-so. Yes, don't forget, she was raped as a child. Here was so-and-so. Yes, he went bankrupt. You know, what if your name was attached behind it, the descriptor, was your, the most painful thing that had happened to you in your life? And this is Mephibosheth. So David says, yes, go get him. I want to bring him to the palace. And I wonder what it was like for Mephibosheth when the servant came to him and said, King David is calling you to the palace. I wonder what went through his mind. I wonder, and we don't know, so we can only fill in the blanks from our own brokenness and kind of our, what we would do. I wonder if I had been in Mephibosheth's place, if I would have had a lot of maybe self-righteous rage towards David. You know, here's the guy that kind of changed my life. He is the one that my family was in line to be royal, and here I am in hiding. You know, was he angry at, at, at his nurse for not taking better care of him? You know, the person who was supposed to take care of you, and though she was rushing out, that she dropped him as a child? You know, was he angry? Was he bitter? Was he fearful? I don't know, but I know I wouldn't have probably been in a great place. So now he is being called to the palace. He's being called by King David. I wonder if there was fear. You know, is he looking? Is there anyone else who can be a threat to my throne? You know, was he coming to be murdered, to be killed? I wonder what his stomach felt like as he was approaching the palace. The scriptures tell us, the writer says, that he fell at his feet. And he says, oh, I'm your servant. You know, I'm your servant. David looks at him. And I, and I just, you know, I, this is his best, this is David's best friend, Jonathan, whom he loved, he made covenant with. And this is his child that he may or may not have even known was still alive. And he's bowing down and he's saying, I will be your servant. And, and, he, and he lifts him up and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he, he tells Mephibosheth, he said, I want you to come 
and live in my house. Be a part of my family. Uh, he said, I'm going to give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And, and I think about this. This would have not been a small amount of property. This wasn't an acre. He said, all of the land that belonged to your grandfather, it is rightfully yours. I'm going to return that back to you. And he says, and I want you to come and eat at my table. I want you to eat at my table every single day. Now, Mephibosheth, overwhelmed by this generosity, this kindness, he says something, and this is what I want us to hear. He says, am I no better than a dead dog? And if we could have that, am I no better than a dead dog? This is how he saw himself. This is what he thought about himself. I am no better than a dead dog. How do you think about yourself? How do you think God views you? He was crippled. He was rejected. He had been in hiding. I am no better than a dead dog. And we might not use those words, but I think, where do we go to hide when we don't want people to see our brokenness, the things that we're the most ashamed of? What is the mask that we put up to hide? You know, for Mephibosheth, it was Lodabar. He lived all those years in hiding, trying to not be seen, trying to not be noticed because of the fear of what could happen to him. And we are not in fear right now of, of an enemy that's going to come and, you know, kill us. But I know for me, sometimes the matters of the heart, you know, I can get in a situation where I, th I think my defense mechanism is when I, when I feel that maybe I'm not going to be accepted, I'm not going to be loved, or, I mean, and, and I don't know that those words consciously go through my mind, but I know what it feels like to have that excruciating sense of being uncomfortable, and, and, and I'm not as bad about it today as I used to be, but I think my default mechanism was always to put up this, this mask of perfection. Um, you know, for women, it's like sometimes, especially when you're a mom, you want your kids to be perfect. You think about the developmental milestones, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, my child better walk at the right age. My, my child needs to be writing at the right age, and if they don't, is there something that I did wrong? You know, maybe for men, it's, it's feeling like that you have to uh, put up this shield, this, this mask to be perfect so that you don't seem weak, you don't seem vulnerable. But it's the mask that we put up to hide those vulnerabilities, those broken parts of our lives. I was talking to Liz Hammock, and we debated long and hard about, could I say what I'm about to say? So I'm going to jump out there and say it. But anyway, um, she, um, she's, she's in a, a small group, and some of uh, there's a couple ladies in here who are in that small group. And she said that one of the things that they do is they kind of don't let one another say, you know, we say, hey, how's it going? How was your week? When they say, I'm fine. And they call that, they call that the F-bomb. And it's like, no, you're not fine. Tell us how you really are. Use, use your words, so to speak. I had, I had a friend who always say, use your words, use your words. It was a hard week. Maybe it was a great week. But fine becomes this, this shield and this mask sometimes that we put up. Mephibosheth, broken 
and in hiding. And he is accepted at the king's table. This, the writer tells us, he said that he sat at the table as if he were one of the king's own servants. As if he were one of the king's own servants. Do y'all hear the, the, the echo in that story? We are likeness of a chef. We have been broken, bruised through our sin, through the sins of others. God sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for us, that his blood could cover all of our shame, all of our guilt, break the power of brokenness, make us whole. And we have the opportunity to come to our king's table with our brokenness covered. We are accepted and loved by him. I want to invite you to do something. In your bulletins, and I, and I heard that coming into the service that some of these fell out, so not everyone might have one. But if you have in your bulletin a piece of aluminum foil, I want to invite you to take it out and open it up. All right, I know not everybody has one. So for those of you who would like to try this with me, I want to invite you to do something. You don't have to if you don't want to. I want to invite you to join me in making a mask over your face, okay? All right. If you're not comfortable, don't do it. All right, but here we go. Here we go. All right. Okay, just make some funny, just make some funny noises when you've got your mic on. Okay. All right, did that mess my mic up? Okay, we got, we got some masks here. For those of you that made the mask, these are those, this is our Lodabar. This is our Lodabar. This is where we go when we go in hiding. What, what was it like when you had your mask covering your face? You couldn't see hot. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. It was covering my nostrils. But you know what was the most... Um, significant thing for me I couldn't see you and you couldn't see me I couldn't see you and you couldn't see me sometimes the mask that we put up whether that's the fine the per perfection shield sometimes it's a it's a trying to be tough and angry uh, whatever that is it breaks our connection with one another and y'all, it breaks our connection with God. When we are in Lodabar, when we're in hiding, hoping, feeling that God doesn't accept us, love us, see us as perfect, as whole, as lovable, we are disconnected from the king's love. When David saw Mephibosheth, he said, you come sit at my table. You are as if you were one of my very own children. There's a great quote by Brene Brown, and I want to read this to y'all. It's a little long, but it's so powerful. Uh, she's a writer, a social scientist, and she says, we are wired for connection. It's like it's a part of our DNA, connection with one another, connection with God. She says, as infants, our need for connection is about survival. As we grow older, connection means thriving emotionally physically, spiritually, intellectually. 
connection is critical because we all have the basic need to feel accepted and believe that we belong and are valued for who we are. David said, Mephibosheth, you belong. Mephibosheth, you are accepted. And I pray and my hope for today is that you can hear the Lord's words, speaking Jesus, speaking those words over you. You are loved. You are accepted. You are mine. I also hope that we will be intentional about creating, I like to call them micro-communities. I would call this the macro-community, but we all need smaller places, smaller circles, whether that is a, a, a group of folks that you play golf with, whether that is a group that you go get coffee with, maybe that's a small group Bible study, maybe it's a smaller group within your Sunday school class. But I hope that we will be intentional about creating micro-communities, circles, where we create safe places where people can take their mask off and know that they're not going to be hurt and wounded if they really, truly show up and let people see their true selves. You know, I love what Liz said. She said, basically, you know, somebody walks in, how was your week? It was fine. It was like, nope, we're not going to let you do that. Tell us how you're really doing. And I'm going to tell you how I really did because this is a safe place where we can take the mask off and we can show who we are. In a few minutes, we are going to take communion. And, and as I'm going to close here in prayer, and as I close, I'm going to invite those who will be assisting in communion to come up. But I want to invite you, if you made a mask, and if you would like to, you've got a couple of options. Um, you might want to take it home as a reminder, uh, as something to put on your, you know, in your desk or someplace as a reminder about taking your mask off. But you might want to just crumple it up. You might want to do this, kids. Can I make, it, make a noise? Uh, <laughs> you might want to do this. And you might want to leave it on the altar and say, Jesus, I give you my mask. I give it to you. And I thank you that I am like Mephibosheth. I am broken and I have been in hiding. But I want to come out of hiding because I am a daughter of the king. I am a son of the king. And I sit at your table. Let's pray.